This is an ACR 2022 podcast, especially for you mavens, aficionados, and experts in this specific topic, either lupus, RA, PSA, or SPA. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Dr. Katherine Dow. I'm reporting on the ACR 2022 meeting for RoomNow. And I have with us today a very special guest, Professor Eric Moran, who is the head of the School of Clinical Sciences and head of the Menashe Health Rheumatology Unit. He also founded the Menashe Lupus Clinic, and I'm so excited to have him with us today. Welcome, Eric. It's great to be here, Catherine. Thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the abstracts that you're going to be presenting, it's abstract 2054. It's titled Towards a Novel Clinician-Reported Outcome Measures for Lupus, Outcomes of an International Consensus Process. So this is actually like a new treatment response measurement tool for lupus. Could Uh you tell us a little bit about this and why it's so important? Yeah, sure, Catherine. So we all know that uh, doing successful clinical trials for lupus has been very difficult uh, ever since we started trying to do it. Uh, Part of the reason is the well-known clinical heterogeneity of lupus, the biological heterogeneity of lupus, issues with study design, stereotaper, patient variability, etc. But we also know that one of the measures is the outcome measures. So uh, traditionally in lupus trials, what's being used is the SRI4, which is based on the SLEDI, and the main driver of improvement is a four-point change in SLEDI score, or the BICLA, uh, which is based on similar tools, but just with different um, orientation, and you require an improvement in all bilag domains, uh, and and they also have ways to capture no worsening. So they have uh, worked. We've had uh, 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 belimumab approved uh, using the SRI4 originally. Uh, Not many people remember that the SRI4 was actually derived from the belimumab phase two data. The original phase two trial for belimumab was negative, uh, but the uh, authors uh, combed the data to try to find categories of patients who looked like responders and measures of improvement that looked like a measure that worked. And that became the SRI4, and it's worked for every belimumab trial since then. It's worked for very few other trials, however, uh, and famously, uh, the TULIP 1 and 2 trials were discordant in their results for SRI4, although concordant in results for the BICLA measure. And these were identical phase three trials using the same compound, anafrolumab. Uh, we're lucky that anafrolumab ended up getting approved because of the totality of evidence, but actually it was a narrow thing uh, because that primary outcome measure, SRI4, uh, uh, was negative in the TULIP1 phase three trial. So uh, while there remain many reasons for this, uh, we're quite sure that the, these tools actually are part of the problem. So the reason for that is that they the, the SLEDI and the BILAG both go back to about 1990 or 92 when they were first, first described. And although they've had improvements since then, and although they were derived from you know, a very uh, uh, hardworking consensus process, uh, they were not designed actually to be used in clinical trials. They were used as uh, for using cohort studies to measure disease activity you know, over time. Uh, and so on. They weren't specifically designed to measure response to therapy. So they've been um, hijacked into uh, this role to measure response to therapy, uh, for which they were not designed. Um, They have performed, you know, the results are mixed. And uh, we think that uh, the time is right for a dedicated effort to make a response measure that's just designed for one thing, which is measuring treatment effect in a clinical trial. 
because uh, we we still need more treatments for our lupus patients, as you know, Catherine. Uh, we've got a long way to go to get better outcomes from our patients. We're, no, absolutely. We can't, and it, we can't it, afford to keep having trials that fail due to it, basically to uh, a problem that we caused because we're the ones who make up this measure. Uh, the biology of the lupus is the biology of lupus and the molecular target is the molecular target, but the measures are made up by us. So it's up to us to get that right. Yeah, I've been involved in quite a few of the clinical lupus trials, and it was so frustrating, um, you know, because you can see a treatment response. And these patients, though, you know, are on such high background medicine. So then you don't see the treatment effect. Mm -hmm. um, so how how exactly um, are you going to derive all these definitions of what yeah. you deem appropriate? Yeah. Thanks, Catherine. So um, what we decided to do, uh, well, when we, when we began, uh, we started talking to colleagues and also to industry uh, partners because uh, it's it's our patients and us and uh, and the pharma companies that need this uh, better tool. Uh, so it's sort of all of us who need it and all of us have to work together to get it. And we started thinking of this chiefly as a scientific project. And my own feeling was that this would be potentially quite uh, doable if we borrowed from a very good measure like the ACR 205070 which uh, has stood the test of time and worked great, given us fantastic medicines to use in our RA patients, and is based on using continuous variables like swollen joint count or um, CRP, uh, measuring percentage change from a baseline, and the baseline is that patient's baseline, and every patient has their own baseline. So we don't do any of those things when we do lupus clinical trials. We don't use individual baseline. We don't use continuous variables, and we don't use uh, percentage change. So we started to wonder, what if we took that approach and looked at things that we do actually measure in lupus, like a joint count uh, or a sed rate or a platelet count or a proteinuria? These are continuous variables. Uh, uh, they would be able to be measured in a similar way to what we've just described for the ACR 2050-70. Uh, is that something that we could do? So that was our starting point. But then we realised um, that actually to do it right, we needed to actually throw away uh, our starting point ideas and start with a blank page. And so that's what we've done. And in this abstract, we describe a process wherein We've gathered a consortium of uh, clinical academic lupus experts, uh, experts from uh, 10 pharma companies involved in uh, lupus drug development, uh, leadership from the Lupus Foundation of America and Lupus Europe, representing patients, a very robust governance committee, including a patient advisory panel, um, scientific advisory board steering committee. And that group of people have set around designing a method to come up with a new measure for lupus clinical trials. So even though we've started with some ideas, we've actually set them aside and focused our attention instead in trying to have a robust scientific methodology to go from a blank page to a measure that works using the best possible evidence, expertise, and you know, a Delphi consensus methodology, nominal uh, consensus techniques, and just try to be really methodologically uh, robust. And I noticed that you've had some pretty heavy hitters in the world of lupus. Uh -huh. um, how hard was it to get all these people to come together? Because you have people from North America, Latin America, Asia, Australia. So uh -huh. the time zones are different. You yeah. know, the opinions are different. They're very strong will. So yeah. how was yeah. that like? Uh, actually, it's great. Um, we found that there's been a strong agreement of uh, on the need. And there's been a kind of a rallying behind the idea of being 
uh, just really agnostic to what the outcome looks like. It's not my measure or your measure. No one's bringing their measure. Uh, we're we're going to use a, a process, a collective uh, process, uh, to get to the point we need to get to. Uh, I need to point out that we've also have regulatory experts, and that turns out to be a hugely important part of the process. And I'll talk about that in a second if you want me to. Um, so actually, bringing people together. Uh, you know, I think everybody wants this. And if you lay out a robust methodology with strong governance, and it's a really a partnership, uh, people are interested to spend their time. In terms of the time zone, uh, I mean, I'm from Australia, and we're used to having to get up in the middle of the night to meet um, other people's time zones. So that's what we do. Uh, it's definitely challenging to have Europe, Asia, North America, uh, South America, but actually we wanted to have global representation. Uh, from uh, lupus clinicians, global representation from uh, companies involved in developing medicines. And uh, we have global representation on our patient advisory panel as well. You know, un underrepresented non-European ancestry people is an issue in, in clinical trials. It's an issue in research. And we, we just wanted to cover that base as well. That's what I thought was the very strong point is the representation from the diverse background. Mm -hmm. And you had mentioned regulatory experts. Was the FDA yeah. part of this? And what other regulatory um, yeah. governance was involved? Well, what we've realized in the end is that um, we could do the best science in the, in the world and come up with some kind of amazing, highly effective discriminatory measure. Uh, but if regulators like the FDA don't like it, we wasted our time. Because in the end, for, for a company to have a product approved, they need to do a trial with a measure that the FDA approves before they commence the trial. So right now, the FDA approves the SRI and Vicla for, for lupus trials. Notwithstanding the issues that are there, uh, we'll need to provide high-quality scientific proof that we've got something better, and we need the FDA and the European agency, the EMA, and all the other national uh, regulatory agencies to uh, get on board. So uh, we've... Uh, uh, engaged some uh, regulatory experts, some ex-FDA people actually are on our um, steering committee. They are guiding us about how to get it right. Even the wording is special uh, for um, regulatory documentation. I've learned phrases that I never used before, like concept of interest and context of use. And in our abstract, we define our methodology that we've yielded definitions for those two things for our process. Uh, and uh, what we're about to do, <clears throat> actually, right after I get home from the ACR, we're going to be formally writing to the FDA uh, with uh, an outline of our proposal. They actually have a process to look at new measures. They have an evaluation process that we're going to engage in. And what we hope to do <clears throat> is to get the FDA not across the table, but around the table. So we actually work with them. So we're about to reach out to them. And if anyone is watching uh, from the FDA, please contact me. Um we, we need to do that first with the biggest agencies that are so influential in having um, uh, drug approvals, that Europe and the US. But in the, in the end, that'll need to be replicated around the world. Um, but I guess we can't do everything at once. Now, I know that you're using the PICO-C framework um, mm -hmm. to develop this tool. And the consensus is actually pretty high across the board. Um, mm -hmm. But the lowest one was actually the patient item. There's 64 items. Mm -hmm. And the consensus is, I believe, 81%, whereas all the others were above 90% or even 100%. Yep. Yep. Will you talk about that? What what happened? Yeah. Uh, well, so we we, we used the PICOC framework uh, to, to for one specific task, was to, which was to define um, this conceptual definition. 
so uh, uh, what we understand now in order to, to meet the regulatory requirements is we start with a conceptual definition of what we're trying to do. And after that, we lay upon the kind of methodological, operational, mathematical uh, components, which won't be done with PicoC. That'll be done with other other techniques. So uh, um, the we we had a preset uh, consensus threshold of seventy percent to be acceptable. So eighty percent was fine. That uh, we had a kind of a priori gate of seventy percent consensus to move forward. So we weren't worried by having eighty um, percent. You know, these consensus processes, uh, humans are involved. And um, at the longer we did the P first, and we did the, you know, we did them in order, and uh, I think we got to know each other better, and um, you know, we, we kind of concepts that we came up with, we, we did our job better, and we got higher levels of consensus as we went through the process. So I think that's not unusual for this kind of approach, and uh, we think those numbers are fine. Part of me felt like you were so tired by the end. You're like, oh, what the heck. <laughs> Well, I hope not. I hope not. And we don't. We have to try to resist that sort of thing, right? Uh, right. Uh, we have to try to. We have to work really hard to resist that because this is. I mean, why hasn't this been done before? Because it's hard, actually. Uh, this is a lot of work. Uh, the process that we've just com completed completed is a survey of physicians and patients uh, for the domains that they consider important in their disease in the disease lupus not how to measure it or what change looks like but just what is important and that was an uninformed um, survey uh, we've got a long list of items when we're about to do a massive series of literature reviews uh, to find evidence for whether or not there is evidence supporting the importance of those things in terms of what the fda refers to as how a patient feels functions or survives and the language of the FDA uh, is extremely patient-centric. Um, the, the movement is really strongly away from what does the doctor think to how does the patient feel. And so we we are we have strong engagement with uh, patient organisations and directly with patients on our um, patient advisory panel. And there are patient members on each of our um, steering committees as well. Uh, so we will be driving strongly towards this idea of the patient at the centre of the story. And I think that's going to give, give us a measure that's really different to what we've done before. Well, that's okay, because what we've been doing before hasn't always been working so well. That's so important. And that's why I really love the fact that you all have gotten together to formulate this tool. Um, because I believe in the abstract, it says, we're not just going to be measuring disease activity, but we're measuring treatment response. And this uh is patient-centered. Right, exactly. So we are not trying to measure to design a new disease activity score. Not at all. We, a side product might be a disease activity score, but that is not our goal. Our goal is to measure delta uh, in response to, to therapy in the context of a placebo-controlled trial. So that is our, that's our single focus. <clears throat> now, it might be possible that such a tool could also be used in clin everyday clinical practice, or it might be possible that such a tool would find a use in cohort studies of disease activity, but we don't want to kind of pollute uh, the our agenda with those possibilities, because we might get distracted from doing the one thing that we need to do. And, uh, you know, it's science, so we don't know the result yet. We don't know whether we're going to succeed, uh, but we don't want to, we don't want to fail for lack of trying. Right. How will you validate the tool? Yeah. So um, the uh, abstract describes what we call aim one of our project, and it has three aims. Aim one is to basically come up with the novel measure. Uh, we'll be reporting further out 
outcomes of our consensus process over the next uh, year at the next upcoming meetings. Once we have the draft measure, we'll then be working with our industry partners to validate it in trial data sets, which we don't have, which we don't have access to, uh, but which the companies have committed to go away, do the work uh, inside uh, their shop on their data, come back with the results and share those results um, with the whole group. And I must say there's been fantastic very open and transparent collaboration between these companies who, commercially speaking, are competitors, uh, but they're extremely collaborative uh, uh, in regard to this, including uh, in their commitment to use data um, to help address this. So um, aim two of the project will be to use existing trial data sets uh, and new clinical trials because companies are starting new trials all the time. So we, as the first trial to kick off once the instrument is in draft stage will include this instrument as a, as a uh, exploratory outcome measure. So we'll get real-time data as new trials go forward, as well as look-back data using existing trial data sets. And then the third, and I think very important um, aim, is to validate this measure in terms of long-term patient outcomes. Uh, uh, because actually for um, SRI and Bicla, there's very little validation that attaining an SRI or Bicla response actually changes your outcome in terms of damage accrual um, health-related quality of life, mortality, and so on. I mean, there is some evidence now in the health-related quality of life that a Bicla responder, for example, um, has uh, uh, improvements in health-related quality of life, but there's not uh, there's not vast amounts of evidence in that space. There's just a bit. So uh, we propose to, to uh, uh, reach out to long-term registries to deploy this tool uh, and uh, track patients' response in the real world and see whether it correlates with those outcomes that are so important, like damage and mortality. So those are the three parts. It's going to take a while. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to it and, you know, looking forward to hopefully incorporate this tool in future clinical trials that we'll be involved in. So yeah. I want to thank you so much for your time, for allowing me to pick your brain on this. And congratulations again on putting together such an incredible team to produce such an important tool. Thank this is Dr. So much, this is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for Room Now. Please follow me on Twitter at KDow2011. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Hi everyone, Jack Cush. I'm here on the convention floor at ACR 2022, Philadelphia. The morning has just begun. I just came out of the year in review, a popular session. So popular they had an overflow room, which means they must have had 5,000 plus people viewing this thing. Two presenters, a clinical and a basic scientist, Dr. Carol Langford from the, clinical, the Cleveland Clinic and Dr. John Varga from the University of Michigan did a stellar job. Carol put uh, out the call for what was the highlights of this year as far as the year in review, the best stuff in the clinical sciences. She had a few. One, the GLORIA trial, a pragmatic study of steroid use in uh, RA patients over the age of 65. Second was, as you would expect the oral surveillance study, tofacitinib versus a TNF inhibitor and its safety woes. The mirror study she highlighted, which is the methotrexate being added on top of peglodicase in refractory and difficult to treat gout patients. And then of course the new indication of something we've been using for many years, the FDA approved this year, the IVIG uh, approach to treating uh, patients with dermatomyositis. Again, we've done it for years, but now we have an FDA indication. We presented that, that data last year at this meeting. Uh, the other big thing, it's in press, is the CART T-cell um, directed therapy at CD19 or, C or B cells 
uh, a great paper from Georg Schett showing how you could take train wreck refractory SLE patients who failed everything and give them these CAR T cells and they all went into remission off of their biologics. Um, next was, um, was she closed with uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis, something that we should be considering in our patients who are immunosuppressed, especially those on rituximab, uh, as a way of uh, keeping them safe, even here at the tail end of the rituximab pandemic. She had others. John Varga dealt with the basic science side. He led with, uh, and he also received input from colleagues and, and culled what he thought was the most important. A few from him was um, the report of a TLR7, a toll-like receptor 7 variant, that leads to a higher susceptibility for lupus. By having this variant in TLR7, you have a gain of function sensitivity to um, uh, nucleic acids, therefore leading to this immunogenic response, more B cells, more plasma, uh, cytoid B cells, et cetera, leading to lupus. It's that, so sort of discovered as a human mutant, but then reproduced via CRISPR technology in animals. Really exciting. Also, the um, increased expression of CD8, CD38 um, in lupus patients was found and also found to be associated with lupus patients with infection. He sort of went um, and just sort of discussed how that happens. Really interesting. Uh, another paper on uh, immune activity in non-lesional lupus skin that's similar to lesional lupus skin, saying that even though the skin isn't involved by looking at it, by seeing a malar rash or a discoid rash, there's a lot going on in the skin of patients with lupus. And then um, lastly, he, he, he had others, but uh, he talked about a vaccination-based approach to and with immunotherapy um, to target uh, pro-fibrotic cells, a way of treating these conditions like scleroderma, ILD, et cetera, where fibrosis is a big problem. A great session, really informative. The year in review, another knockout here at ACR. Tune in for more. Hello everyone, uh, my name is uh, Yus Yusuf. Uh, I'm uh, reporting uh, for Room Now. Uh, I'm from Leeds, United Kingdom. Unfortunately, uh, I'm not available uh, to attend uh, the ACR conference in person. However, this is the uh, wonderful things about the hybrid conference where I can join my colleagues uh, through online. Uh, today, uh, I'm privileged uh, to be joining uh, uh, to be joined by uh, Dr. Amit Saxena, Associate Professor uh, in Medicine at uh, New York University. Uh, hi, Amit. Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome. Um, so today we would like to talk about uh, an abstract uh, two, uh, 2081 uh, that was presented at the um, uh, Lightning uh, uh, Lightning Poster talk today. Um, so Amit, uh, would you like to tell us about uh, the background of the studies and what were your objectives? Yeah, so, you know, we know that patients that have systemic lupus are at high risk for severe disease from COVID-19. Uh, based on their kind of inherent immune perturbations and also just the fact that they use these immunosuppressants. Uh, and, and those immunosuppressants also can affect the responses to the COVID vaccines. You know, we've seen the decreased vaccine responses in patients who take those types of medications. Uh, and this objective of this study really was to see what the impact of uh, an additional dose or what we call the booster dose of those vaccines was uh, in patients with systemic lupus, particularly because 
uh, you know, shortly after most people started having those booster doses, uh, we were hit with that big Omicron wave in New York, which happened in, in from December to February. And so kind of pressure tested, uh, you know, what the vaccine responses were going to be. Uh, and so, you know, we wanted to evaluate how effective those doses were, uh, comparing people who had the booster dose and those who didn't, and also then looking at the serologic changes and, and the response to those vaccines as well. That's great. Um, so just to clarify, that, so majority, so the, the study was done predominantly during the Omicron uh, period. You know, we tracked our patients, you know, from the time that they got the vaccine. So we do have data from before that, uh, but... Uh, but, you know, the truth was that there weren't a lot of breakthrough infections in that time period. Really, we only had two breakthrough infections before Omicron. Uh, and then when Omicron came, was we saw the potentially the vaccine uh, evasiveness of that variant uh, led to a large number of cases. Uh, although I think one of the key takeaways of this study was that even though there were a large number of cases, there wasn't a lot of that severe disease that we saw early. Uh, and we really kind of uh, think that that's for the effectiveness of the vaccines overall. Mm -hmm. So would you like to uh, tell us uh, some, some key points of the, the results of your um, study? Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, we looked at 163 patients from our lupus cohort uh, at NYU, and um, and we followed them for a mean of 11.2 months afterwards, you know, at least six months after their vaccine uh, or uh, until the time of a breakthrough infection. Uh, and, um, and you know, 125 of those patients had uh, a booster dose. So we were really looking at the comparison between those patients who had it and those patients who didn't. Uh, and what we saw was that, you know, about 22% of the patients that did have that additional dose of the vaccine had a breakthrough infection, while, while 42% of the, of the patients who didn't have the vaccine, the additional vaccine had it. So that was actually a statistically significant to 0 0.02, uh, and uh, and so that tells us that in addition to just helping prevent severe disease, these booster doses were actually helping prevent people from catching um, COVID nineteen. Oh, fantastic! Um, so just uh, out of interest, um, of those uh, people who did get the um, breakthrough infections, um, so what was the nature of the infection? Was it was it mild or you know severe hospitalization and so forth? It it was mild. Uh, and so we only had two hospitalizations and both of those patients were treated. And, and uh, most importantly, there were no COVID-19 deaths. And again, that's a very big difference to earlier in the pandemic. We looked at the same cohort, our same lupus cohort uh, early in the pandemic and obviously had much more severe disease pre-vaccine. So this data is really encouraging for us to, you know, to counsel our patient, particularly, you know, the the eff effectiveness of the you know, booster vaccination in protecting our lupus patients. Um, so in terms of um, uh, how do we bring into clinical practice and also what's your um, you know, future research, you know, af after these findings? Yeah, I think what you said is exactly right. I think at least having some strong data to tell our patients uh, that, uh, that, you know, that, that we recommend this and we can actually back this up with data is, is really important. Um, and, you know, and we're just one of many, obviously, uh, clinical studies that have been looking at some of these questions. Uh, and we're seeing the same responses, uh, you know, kind of throughout. And 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 other studies are showing the safety of these booster vaccines and the vaccines in general. So so just the more information we have, uh, the better we can. We, it is to talk to our patients. And you know, we're going to continue following this cohort and seeing what happens to them as they develop. Obviously, as we get new vaccines, we'll be monitoring those things as well. And so you know, we'll we'll keep taking a look at this these patients. Uh, th thank you so much, um, Dr. Saxena, uh, for uh, a quick recap of uh, you know, your, your, your findings.
uh, and thank you for all uh, for for listening today uh, and uh, please uh, follow um uh, room now uh, through um twitter uh, youtube uh, and uh, linkedin thank you hello everyone my name is Yus Yusuf i'm from uh, leeds united kingdom i'm reporting for room now uh, for uh, acr conference 2022 at philadelphia Unfortunately, I won't be able uh, to attend the meeting uh, personally, hence uh, I'm uh, joining and reporting for Room Now uh, through a virtual um, attendee. Um, so today uh, is the official first day of uh, ACR conference. Uh, there have been uh, plenty of uh, uh, data presented. Uh, the one that um, caught my eye, uh, in terms of uh, lupus topic uh, is uh, an abstract uh, title, uh, abstract number 0355. Uh, this uh, is um, a post hoc uh, analysis uh, of a three-year study of uh, chlorosporin uh, in class five lupus nephritis uh, trials. Uh, as we all know, um, out of all the uh, classes in lupus nephritis, uh, class five, uh, which is the membranous nephropathy, is one of the hardest one to treat uh, because the patient often uh, have um, severe proteinuria. Uh, it, is, it is really important to get uh, the uh, protein urea reduce or back to as normal as we can as soon as possible uh, because this can uh, affect uh, long-term outcomes. So this uh, study um, is uh, initially from the Aurora uh, 1 trial uh, for 12 months. After that, uh, those patients will then continue in a blinded fashion way for another two years. So it's three years in total. So uh, in these patients, um, uh, so there were 81 uh, patients in total that were reported uh, uh, of this. Um, 30 of them uh, had uh, class uh, five, uh, pure, uh, pure class five nephritis, uh, whereas uh, the other um, remaining uh, have a mixed uh, class five nephritis. Uh, you know, it could be three and five or four and five uh, uh, you know, uh, cl uh, classes. So they compared um, between two arms. One is um, the volclosporin and the st standard therapy uh, versus um, standard therapy uh, plus uh, placebo. Um, so uh, at uh, 36 months follow-up, uh, interestingly, uh, there's more uh, uh, the, the patient uh, who achieve um, reduction uh, of urine protein urea uh, from uh, in three gram uh, to less than uh, 0.5 millig uh, milligram uh, uh, protein urea uh, was a lot faster uh, in the vocalosporin group compared to the uh, standard therapy. Uh, so the median times uh, were uh, three and a half months uh, for the vocalosporin group uh, and also um, eight months uh, for um, uh, the, the standard therapy. Uh, also, uh, th when they look into broader picture, if they uh, if they analyze uh, the the mixed classes together, 
uh, still, um, the median time is uh, three months uh, for uh, the vocosporin group, uh, whereas uh, for the standard therapy, it was quite a long, um, around sort of 15 to 16 months. So, uh, and uh, importantly, people were talking about one is proteinuria, but how about the renal function? Um, so the studies also show that uh, in um, class 5 uh, lupus nephritis, uh, the EGFR was maintained throughout uh, for three years. So this is really uh, important data um, to show uh, that the vocrosporin uh, also works uh, effectively uh, in this particular type uh, of uh, lupus nephritis, which is uh, uh, resistant, seem to uh, resistant to therapy. Um, how this um, will um, affect our uh, clinical implications? Um, so, so for countries uh, who can uh, get access to vocrosporin. So this is quite a good, this is really good news uh, to improve uh, outcomes of our patients. Uh, however, uh, for uh, those countries, uh, you know, for which uh, vocrosporin, uh, there is no access to it, uh, particularly in terms of, um, you know, fun uh, funding wise, because it's quite expensive. So maybe we probably uh, would think of uh, trying to substitute uh, a different calcineurin inhibitor in these patients who have really heavy proteinuria before, you know, trying to get them stabilized, lower them quickly before we then uh, embark them with other uh, immunosuppressive therapy uh, that is available uh, on, on in India countries. So uh, I hope um, um, you find that um, summary uh, interesting uh, and useful for clinical practice. Uh, you can uh, follow me. Uh, uh, on my Twitter handle, U6Yusuf, uh, and follow uh, Room Now for more coverage uh, through uh, YouTube's uh, uh, tweet, uh, Twitter uh, and uh, uh, LinkedIn. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Dr. Catherine Dow. I'm reporting the ACR 2022 with Room Now, and I'm so excited to be here with you. I'm attending ACR virtually, but I wanted to share with you abstract 0939. And this abstract um, is by Dr. Patricia Dar and her colleagues. And what they're doing is they're using uh, a new tool in order to screen cervical health in lupus patients. This is a pilot study. And what it is was that they took 30 non-pregnant women with lupus um, between the ages of 18 to 50. Now, I want to emphasize these patients were not pregnant. And they were willing to do vaginal self-sampling um, using like a pap smear brush that they use the pap compound, but not necessarily brushing the cervix. So about 40% um, of the study participants had a lupus nephritis with more than 80% of them taking corticosteroids, hydroxychloroquine or other immunosuppressants. Now these women were interviewed um, and surveys were administered looking at their sexual health, their sexual history, um, cervical health, whether or not they've had cervical cancer or abnormal pap smears, knowledge about HPV and opinions about using um, a self-sampling brush to do this. The vaginal samples were obtained by the participants. It was processed and read by a cytopathologist. And despite the absence of quality indicators, meaning that there's no cervical cells, as well as um, indications of other quality measures, the samples actually showed pretty good preservation of morphology. Four out of the 30 samples exhibited abnormal findings. So this includes low-grade squamous intraepithelial lesions and atypical squamous cells of unknown significance. Now, these patients were referred on to see the gynecologist. 
The patients found that the self-sampling was easy and that it was very comfortable, and many of them would actually self-sample compared to doing the traditional pap smears, which could be pretty uncomfortable. So while additional studies are needed to evaluate the sensitivity, specificity, um, positive and negative predictive value when doing vaginal cell sampling compared to the traditional pap smear, there's actually a huge take-home message from this abstract. So the reason why the study really impressed me so much is that it's not just a novel approach to cervical cancer screening, but it was the data collected about these women. You know, and as rheumatologists, we're, we're so busy about trying to take care of the rheumatic diseases that we totally forget about, you know, addressing the patient's other needs and educating them about sexual health and reproductive health. And so what the study authors collected in terms of their data was that they found that 70% of these women actually had an STD that's not HPV. And then only 16% had ever been vaccinated for HPV. Now, some of these women were actually pretty young. The mean age was about 30, 39. Um, and then the average number of lifetime sexual partners for these patients is about 9.5. But then only 26% of them actually use condoms or any kind of barrier method. And additionally, about 70% of the patients have had prior history of cervical cancer, um, but very few of them actually went in for routine um, evaluation by a gynecologist. So most of the participants actually had um, understood that HPV can cause cervical cancer, but very few of them were actually aware that HPV can cause oral, pharyngeal cancers, genital cancers, and warts. And in that study, they found that 33% of these women, that's a third of them, had genital warts, and three of uh, 23% of them had prior oral warts. And so this is an important area that is lacking where we need to educate our patients to protect themselves because we know that immunosuppressants can accelerate the development of cervical cancer as well as um, different vulvar cancers, penile cancers, oropharyngeal cancers, particularly when it relates to HPV. And our patients actually, um, you know, they're trying their best but they just need a little bit of hand-holding and also a little bit of education in order to protect themselves. So this is Dr. Catherine Dow uh, reporting for Room Now. Follow me on Twitter at KDow2011. Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope. I'm at Room Now, a reporter, and I'm coming to you live from Philadelphia, ACR 2022. I wanted to talk about non-adherence and lupus, why is it important, but just as important for us as clinicians, what do we do about it? So I'm gonna talk about three abstracts. So the first is from the SLIC, or the SLE, Inception Cohort Cooperating Clinics. And they looked at 660 patients with SLE. And they looked at hydroxychloroquine levels. And they said, if you were below a certain level when you were on 400 milligrams or a half that level on 200 milligrams a day, you were considered non-adherent. This is abstract number 0343. Would they find in a nutshell? If in the first year you have low hydroxychloroquine levels, there's three important things. Number one, increased flares in the next year. Number two, more accrual of damage over the next five years. And five-year mortality was increased. So very solemn. What are we going to do about it? So there's two abstracts that I want to talk about. One was to have looking at non-adherence in minorities such as lupus patients of color. 
This was abstract number 0115. What did they do and what did they find? They interviewed uh, clinic nurses, rheumatologists that treated lupus patients and lupus patients themselves who were minorities, patients of color. And they found basically three things. They found that an optimal intervention to improve adherence will need capability, opportunity, and motivation. Well, what's that mean? Capability, you gotta have access to your meds. Opportunity, uh, reminders, social media, other ways to help you to take your meds, and motivation through empowerment, and really, again, ways for patients to understand and education to take their meds. The final one I wanna talk about is that if you're gonna look at adherence, in four minutes, actually 3.9 minutes, you can discuss adherence. So doctors in a lupus clinic were trained that if a patient was filling their prescriptions for their lupus meds less than 80% of the time over the last three months to have an intervention. So of 24 encounters like this, 21 had positive reinforcement um, and the patient said it was validated in 17 of those 21 and 11 had open-ended questions. This is abstract number 0063. Bottom line is non-adherence and lupus can kill our patients. There's ways of improving it by um, looking in qualitative studies and then enacting it. And this is a way in four minutes you can discuss adherence with your patients. What we need to know next is if I discuss non-adherence and help the patient become more adherent, will change outcomes? I hope so. Coming to you now at Room Now. Thank you. It's November 11th, 2022. Hi, I'm Jack Cush. This is the Room Now podcast. We're on the eve of ACR 2022, ACR Convergence here in Philadelphia. Uh, and we're going to go over a few items from this past week in the news and then preview some of the exciting things that will be happening in the next few days as Room Now covers ACR 22. Let me begin with a study of cannabis use that actually was more prevalent during the pandemic. Can you imagine that? This is actually a study of 78,000 individuals, and they looked at jurisdictions where cannabis was legal and where it wasn't legal. Um, and uh, so there will be illegal. And so there's legal recreational, legal medicinal. I don't want to get into that. But in places where cannabis is legal in the United States, the, the use of it grew significantly during the pandemic compared to pre-pandemic levels. Um, interestingly, in non-legal states where it's illegal, it remained the same. So wider avail availability, uh, it looked like marijuana and THC products were getting sort of the same uptake as was alcohol. All those people staying home with not much to do. As you know, alcohol sales also went up during the pandemic. Not sure what that really means, but uh, again, I'm sort of always interested in the cannabis literature because it's so prevalent and widespread, yet there's little known about its true utility and efficacy, but everybody wants it. So give everybody what they want. I guess that's the way of the world these days. A study of almost 46,000 respondents for over a 20-year period shows that chronic pain has actually increased in that 20-year period, and they looked at prescription use, and not surprisingly, non-pharmacologic uh, analgesic meds uh, was much higher than the use of opioids for chronic pain, but not for surgical pain and not for cancer pain. The point of this, of course, is that it looks like 
um, government policies and public health measures to reduce the reliance on opioids seems to have had some effect. And congratulations to all of you who have heeded those warnings. Uh, NHANES, as, a, as you know, is an ongoing survey of, of health habits in the United States. Uh, this particular survey looked at sleep habits amongst U.S. adults over the age of 20. They looked at almost 9,000 individuals, and they found that, uh, what do you think is the average sleep time in the United States? What would be a good amount of hours if you were to get in the right amount of sleep? Well, from this study, it was 7.6 hours on work days and 8.2 hours on your free days or the weekends, I would assume. Um, about a quarter slept less than seven hours, and about a quarter went to bed at midnight or later, shame on you, um, and 30% said that they had trouble sleeping. I often quoted that 40% of the population has sleep disorders, and I think that this data is probably closer to the truth. 30% um, trouble sleeping, with 27% having daytime sleepiness. Sleep is a major problem in rheumatology. If you're a rheumatologist treating musculoskeletal pain and you don't pay attention to sleep, you've totally missed the boat. You're misdiagnosing all kinds of things. Sleep is responsible for chronic pain, chronic fatigue, strange numbness, migraine headaches, irritable bowel syndrome. I mean, it's a myriad of things that are all rooted in poor sleep. Uh, and it doesn't have to be, you know, sleep apnea or, um, uh, I mean, there's a mirror, again, there's a, a wide range of sleep disorders that need to be addressed. Now, do you want to be the doctor that has to manage that? That's sort of the secondary part of this. It's a beating, isn't it? Anyway, it's a reality. We're going to have to deal with it. Uh, as we know, Plaquenil is the miracle drug for lupus. Uh, it's been shown to do everything from lower blood sugar levels and lipid levels and have an anticoagulant effect and promotes better pregnancy outcomes. We do know that it has a significant effect on uh, uh, outcomes in lupus patients, including mortality. This is a meta-analysis of 21 studies, 26,000 patients, showing that SLE significantly lowers mortality risk by 54%. Um, it was also uh, uh, capable of lowering mortality risk in lupus patients with renal disease by 57%, and patients with lupus patients with cardiopulmonary disease by 63%. Again, it, why is your patient with lupus not taking Plaquenil? I don't think you have a good reason. Uh, another interesting study was a cluster analysis of only 112 patients, but they were specifically looking at what kind of patients had erosive arthritis with lupus. Uh, and what they did see that arthritis and arthralgia is quite common. Arthritis was seen in 27% um, in arthralgia and 73%. Erosive arthritis in 26% cluster analysis showed that erosive disease in lupus was, was uh, uh, more commonly associated with CNS manifestations, serositis, positive tests for ACPA, um, CAR-P antibodies, SM, RMP, and DICOF-1. Interesting analysis. Joseph Smolin did that kind of cluster analysis on lupus patients, oh my goodness, over 20 years ago, showing really how, uh, how different syndromes or different presentations of lupus do cluster. It, it, it is true. I think it's worth um, finding that paper and reviewing it again. 
A lot of things this week on COVID that are worth noting. Um, the FDA issued an emergency use authorization for the use of Anakinra, also known as Kinneret, to treat hospitalized uh, COVID patients who are test positive, hospital- hospitalized who have pneumonia and are requiring supplemental oxygen. Um, or they're felt to be at high risk for respiratory uh, failure and other severe pulmonary outcomes with lupus. So an EUA for Anakinra now joining tocilizumab. The New York Times re- uh, um, reported on an article that's in preprint phase talking about the benefits of Paxlovid. Um, and those individuals, this is a large population-based study, showed that individuals who had Paxlovid within five days of having a positive COVID test had a significantly lower risk of having long COVID symptoms. Interesting. Um, and it lowered the risk by 26%. This was an EMR study of COVID patients with um, risk factors for severe infection. 9,000 received Paxlovid. Um, I guess 45,000 did not. And again, long COVID symptoms were symptoms of COVID lasting beyond 90 days uh, from their infection. Uh, another bit, uh, 12 patients reported with IgA uh, positive co- vasculitis post-COVID vaccination. Um, these were males and females age 52. Um, 10 of the 12 had mRNA vaccines. The time from the vaccination to the onset of IgA vasculitis, that would be a henox line palpable purpura kind of vasculitis, was 11.5 days. Um, um, two-thirds of them had the vasculitis after the first dose, the other third after the second dose. They all had skin involvement. Seven of the 12 had joint involvement for GI2 renal. They were all treated with um, steroids. Is this real? Is this really a syndrome? Again, a wider range, array of strange symptoms happening post-COVID. Until proven otherwise, we have to consider it. And then I, you know, I I saw this other um, abstract in the neurology literature um, talking about um, the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2 is capable of of activating NLRP3 inflammasome. um, And that may be, and of course this was looking at that uh, inflammasome activation as the initial step in the development of chronic neurologic diseases. We know the, the NLRP3 inflammasome is also involved in, in inflammation and, and, and immune events. And I think this is one of the reasons why we do see activation of our patients with, it, with their, if they have pre-existing rheumatic disease uh, uh, and they get infected, why they can get worse. Um, or patients who even after their COVID vaccination uh, either have the onset of a rheumatic disease or worsening of the uh, rheumatic disease. I think it is all driven through the inflammasome and that the, so the spike protein is being perceived as a, as a pathogen uh, pattern that drives activation. Uh, an interesting study, National Swedish Hip and Knee OA Register looked at patients who were actually seen face-to-face versus digitally online almost 7,000 patients, uh, and it turns out that while they both improved um, in their uh, outcomes, the digital patients had larger improvement in pain and function. So those of you who are saying, you know, I don't want to do digital, I don't want to do telemedicine, that's kind of crazy, it's not for me, uh, I want to get back to the old way. 
You know, there's, there's a growing amount of evidence that says that there are many patients who will do just as well, and in this study, they did better. Now, the question is, was the significant difference in pain and function clinically meaningful? I think we'd have to really look at the data closer to know the answer to that. I think the last big important um, news of the week was the ULAR recommendations for the management of RA with conventional biologic and targeted synthetic um, DMARDs. Um, as you know, this was presented at ULAR 2022 by Dr. Joseph Smolin, who did a fine job uh, walking us through that. They posted up their five overarching principles and 11 recommendations. The highlights of this that are new and something you might want to consider is that they were liberal. Um, unlike the ACR, who are draconian about allowing you or suggesting that you use steroids, ACR guidelines say, don't do it. Please don't do it. And if you have to, get off it. The ULAR guidelines say, sure, go right ahead. If you're going to initiate or change a DMARD, short-term glucocorticoids should be part of the regimen um, and that you should be tapered off and have them discontinue as rapidly as possible. They were, again, much more permissive. I think this is sort of up in lines with what many uh, of us in the United States will actually do. Um, they also said that uh, if patients who have been put on a, you know, a DMARD or whatnot, uh, or a biologic DMARD or targeted synthetic, after the steroids have been discontinued and the patient has sustained remission, they say that you can reduce or space out DMARD therapy, and that includes conventional biologic targeted synthetic, but they do not say that you should stop. So again, reduction is fine, stopping is not. I think that's important. The other thing that they say is that um, patients who you're treating, and if you don't achieve your treat-to-target goal, that you should consider adding on a biologic DMART or a targeted synthetic. They should say you should consider a JAK inhibitor, but only after pertinent risk factors have been taken into account. It sounds fine, but in fact, it's quite permissive and liberal compared to the FDA guidelines that say, no, use a TNF inhibitor first then a JAK inhibitor. Um, and as you know, the EMA came out with guidelines we talked about last week that they're going to get a little draconian too. So anyway, that's the news from this week. The big news is that we're starting uh, ACR coverage um, today, but really the first day is tomorrow, Saturday. I think what you should, this is my prelude to a meeting um, um, launch, if you will. I think the good news is we're back at a live meeting. This might be the first big meeting for many of you. Uh, I've been back at a number of them, and they've all gone very well. Many people will wear a mask. A lot of people won't wear a mask. That's all well and fine, whatever makes you feel comfortable. The good thing about this meeting is it's going to be very familiar. A lot of the same old things that you're used to seeing, the great debate, curbside consults, you know, um, the year in review, the plenary sessions, etc. A few things that probably are, uh, I think, that you should note. Um, the new thing is that, at, that the posters are kind of out. There's some online posters, but... Having, instead of having 2,000 posters, they're promoting a small subset of posters, about 235, I think, in what's called Ignite Talks. Ignite Talks are poster pre oral poster presentations that are five minutes long, given in rapid succession. If, thus, in an Ignite Talk session, and there's seven of them scattered throughout the three days, they're 55 minutes, five minutes each. That's 11 presentations. Boom, 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 back to back. It's kind of like a cross between a 
fast-talking auctioneer in a NASCAR race. Jeez, I just hope these people speak English. I think I'm going to mean numb after attending one of these uh, sessions. The question is, why? I think the ACR is doing this so that we could avoid, you know, thousands of people milling around and and having a super seater poster event. I, I think that's the rationale behind this, but. This is like speed dating, learning poster style. I don't know. Uh, I'm going to try it out. I might go poster on this. Uh, we'll see. I'll give you a recap next week. I'm looking forward to a lot of different guidelines being presented this week. Um, no major ones. I think there's a JIA remission guideline, Kawasaki's glucocorticoid-induced osteoporosis, the fifth rendition of the vaccination for rheumatic disease patients where we're getting... Um, to consider all the vaccines, not just the COVID story. Um, starting uh, today, Friday, the, the ACR review course, I would suggest that you follow um, Room Now on Twitter because all of our faculty, a number of our faculty are going to the review course and will tweet out basically great pearls that will be delivered by some of our best teachers in rheumatology. It won't be an overwhelming amount of tweets like you're going to have starting tomorrow when the meeting starts. So just the review course, you'll see, I think, really good pearls. You can follow that on Twitter. Saturday is the day, the first day of the meeting. That's tomorrow. Uh, I'm looking forward to the first big session there. I mean, opening business meeting, awards. A lot of great friends like Alan Kivitz are going to get master's awards. Um, and, um, and, the, and then starting at 1130 is the plenary session, which goes on for an hour and a half. That's in Hall A. The Image Competition Awards will start the session. I'm looking forward to presentations from the Mirror Study, the use of methotrexate in case in difficult gout patients. Cancer screening in myositis. I talked about this yesterday in my QD clinic. Um, and a new biologic marker that drives systemic JIA and mass in kids with systemic JIA. That's all happening um, in the first half of the day uh, at the plenary session. The first Ignite session begins at 1 to 155, sessions 1A, 1B, 1C on three different stages. Again, 11 five-minute poster presentations. Again, it's going to be dizzying. Um, Sunday, they're going to have more Ignite sessions in the morning and the afternoon. Um, maybe the hallmark session of the whole meeting is the session that I'm going to be a part of at 1030, Advancing Telemedicine and Rheumatology. That's in room 108. I'm on the program with uh, Swami Ventura Pali, Jeff Curtis, Maria Danila, Ben Noel, uh, Rebecca Granger. Um, and, uh, and we're going to have a, a one-hour uh, interesting presentation on um, telemedicine and maybe why you should be reconsidering that. The great debate is in the morning. Uh, guidelines for vaccination are going to be at the end of the day on, on Sunday. Uh, and then they have a plenary session. Dan Bio Registry with biosimilar switching. Um, a new, um, uh, I think this is a BTK inhibitor, remibrutinib in Sjogren's syndrome. I'll be interested in that. As you know, I've often said nothing works in Sjogren's syndrome, so I wouldn't invest in it. Um, but we'll see. Maybe this will work out. Antifibrotics and systemic sclerosis. Also on Sunday, there's a great lecture, in the, I think in the morning, the um, Klemperer Lecture by Fred Wigley on scleroderma. Fred, you know, as you know from Johns Hopkins, is our one of our best speakers, one of our best um, teachers and researchers in scleroderma. That should be a great session as well. The last day is Monday. Uh, curbside consults, late-breaking abstracts, 
adult thieves markets. I think it's going to be a, a great wrap up to the meeting. My advice to you, if you're want, if you're on the go, don't have a lot of time to sit and watch hours and hours, is tune in to our topic panels where our faculty who are focused on one topic like RA or uh, SLE will have a topic panel discussion beginning Sunday night, 7 p.m. Eastern. It's going to be, um, you can sign up for it. We're, we're sending out invitations for the webinar if you're a rheumatologist. Otherwise, you can go to our website, our Twitter channel, YouTube channel, Facebook, LinkedIn. We're going to live stream at 7 p.m. Eastern starting Sunday, the lupus topic panel, Monday, the RA topic panel, uh, Tuesday, the psoriatic arthritis topic panel, and then Wednesday, spondoarthritis. Earlier, two hours before that, there's going to be daily recaps by the faculty talking about the highlights of each day, 5 p.m., again, on those same channels. A great way to learn is to tune in room, to Room Now during ACR 22. Hope you're going to enjoy it. Lord knows I will. More to come. Hi, this is Dr. Katherine Dow. I'm at the ACR 2022 meeting. Actually, I'm watching it from Dallas. Anyways, I'm reporting for Room Now, and I wanted to share with you this abstract. It's abstract 0725, and it's a retrospective study about whether or not you should repeat the ENA panel, particularly if it's negative. And that's a question that we all wonder because, you know, in our choosing wisely initiatives and trying to cut costs, Repeating the ENA panel, we don't know the cost effectiveness of it. So for the first time, this is a retrospective audit. This was actually um, done by the, the Monash University in Australia. And what they did was they looked at all patients who've had an ENA result. And they found that there were 23,000 ENA testing from over 19,000 patients between the time period of 2013 to 2020. 89% of the time, the ENA panel was negative with 0.9% equivocal. So that leaves us with about 10% of the tests or 2,300 tests being positive. Row antibodies, especially row 52 antibodies, were the most commonly found ENA. So that's about 51% of the samples. And then about 13.4% of the samples had more than one ENA test performed. And so they look specifically at these tests. So the patients who've had more than one test. So what they found was that over 95% of them, the results were stable. It didn't change. It was positive before, it'll remain positive. It was negative before, it'll remain negative. There's only 2.2% that actually changed from negative to positive. And if you were to exclude patients with pre-existing rheumatic disease, that's only five new results. You know, five new results out of 23,000 ENA testing. It's not worth it. So here it is. Do not repeat the ENA panel again, particularly in somebody with the same kind of symptoms. You're not going to find anything new. This is Dr. Catherine Dow reporting for Room Now. Follow me on Twitter at KDow2011. Hi, I'm Jack Cush. I'm here at ACR 2022 Philadelphia. We're on the uh, exhibit floor in the Room Now booth, and I ran into Dr. Andrea Fava. I'm a big fan of his. Andrea's from... Uh, uh, Johns Hopkins. Uh, I met him two years ago when he had this plenary session talk on the value of CD16 as a biomarker in lupus, far surpassing all the things that we usually look at, like complements and proteinuria and whatnot. And he's been working in this area for quite some time. He's got a number of presentations here. Andrea, tell us about what you're presenting that you're excited about. Yeah, uh, this, 
we are showing that the newest advancement on the urinary biomarkers. As well, we also other work from the Accelerating Medicines Partnership. Uh, so various things. So urinary biomarkers in relation to how can we use these non-invasive biomarkers of kidney inflammation uh, to predict who's going to respond to treatment in lupus nephritis. And, and that's a kind of a revolution because lupus nephritis is an inflammatory condition. We treat with anti-inflammatory, which is immunosuppression. But then we look at response based on proteinuria which is not a marker of inflammation. And so we're now using these biomarkers to say, oh, is the inflammation going down when we use these drugs? And then when it does, these are the patients that ultimately, after one or two years, are those who responded. And so this is a new way of looking at it. And then we also have other stuff from the AMP. Right, so the one, proteinuria is really a marker of damage, right, mostly? And then uh, the urinary biomarkers you're talking about, which one specifically? Yeah, so proteinuria is, is, is right, is the damage of the filter. It means the podocytes are damaged, and then whether there's infl inflammation or not, doesn't matter. You can have proteinuria. Now, the biomarkers, we confirm the interleukin 16 uh, as the biomarkers of nephritis activity, and we have found markers of macrophage activation, such as CD163 and CD206, and these are markers of the pro-resolving macrophages in the kidney. They are trying to heal and maybe causing fibrosis. But they are high at the, the time of active kidney uh, lupus. And they, they go down after two or three months in patients who are effectively responding to immunosuppression. Yeah, so I, and I, I've seen your papers on this. It's really exciting. How practical do you think this is going to be? Obviously, you're just looking at urine, so that's going to be easily accessible. But what about getting... Um, you know, IL-16, um, and uh, CD-163, about getting those done. Uh, you think those will be commercially available? I think they will. I think that CD-163 is the one that has the highest chance of becoming available because it has been a proven, proven as a biomarker in the blood and the urine in many other diseases. Wherever there is uh, macrophage activation, I think macrophage activation syndrome is a good biomarker. Uh, other like ANC-associated vasculitis, IgA, nephropathy, they can have urinary CD163 as a biomarker, so that will come. And, uh, and I think that these biomarkers are so become helpful, not only to have a non-invasive diagnostic tool, but because you can measure them longitudinally, and that can be important. So uh, in academic centering research, we are great at making these discoveries. Uh, and so now we are working to partner with industry and other partners who have the know-how to take this to the next level. So I'm hopeful that in the next few years, uh, once we pass the surpass the uh, regulatory hurdles and in the U.S. the you know payer and insurance hurdles, we'll get them available because they can truly change things. And if I can say one more thing, this is a great opportunity to change clinical trial endpoints. Oh, yeah. And it can make uh, the chance of success of a clinical trial much higher because you, we, the clinical trials are mostly with immunosuppressants, and, but they are measuring proteinuria as an outcome, and that can be messy. And the moment that we can validate these biomarkers as a better biomarker of long-term outcomes, and so if you, if you stop me again next year, I'll show you that data. Yeah, and what, what we didn't have time for here, but you have a body of literature on, is that these biomarkers you're in re and your research correlates with lupus activity. Yes. Correlates with histology on renal biopsy. You know, all the things that we're really worried about. So that's why this is not something that's just a passing fancy. This is the future of lupus management. 
I, I, I certainly hope so. And, and it can, can be so helpful for our patients, for clinicians, and for clinical trial development. Yeah. Follow Dr. Fava at ACR and in the journals. Hello, everyone. My name is Michelle Petrie from Johns Hopkins. And for this room now, I've chosen to tell you more about urine proteomics in SLE. This is going to be a big focus on the first day of the meeting, Saturday. Here is the talk that I'm going to concentrate on. It's being given by Andrea Fava in our group, and it's going to prove that change in urinary biomarkers at three months into treatment of lupus nephritis can predict the one-year treatment response. Now, why is this important? You know, right now we base everything on proteinuria, but the nephrologists have taught us that when they do protocol renal biopsies, this doesn't work as well as we need. So on the left, you see that patients who have met a complete renal response, meaning their protein went down, half of them still have activity on a protocol kidney biopsy. And on the right, you can see the same problem happens in the opposite direction. A protocol kidney biopsy can show that the activity has been treated, it's gone, and the patient still has proteinuria, with the proteinuria representing damage. Now, this work was done using the Accelerated Medicines Partnership collaboration. At the same time that a kidney biopsy was done, we did urine biomarkers at baseline. Now, no other kidney biopsy was done, but we could still collect the urine at three, six, nine months. And of course, at 12 months, it was determined whether the patient was a complete responder or not. And usually that meant to mycophenolate. Now, at three months, patients who had a down-regulation of the collagen-containing extracellular matrix pathway were those that were destined to have a one-year proteinuric response. Then you can see at six months, even more pathways are down-regulated in those destined to be responders, and even more so at 12 months. So you see, we can get this early look at how the patient is doing at three months. And, you know, believe me, we're probably not going to be doing kidney biopsies every three months, are we? Now, this is called a volcano plot. Now that we're in this era of omics, we all have to get used to these new ways of presenting data. So what you see circled in blue are all these different proteins in the urine proteome that are downregulated in those that are going to turn out to be responders at one year. And what you see in red is the urine protein to creatinine. Can you see that all of these markers outperform the urine protein to creatinine? So we can do better. And some of these had already been identified by other investigators. Brad Rovin and colleagues had identified CD163. Our group, for example, had worked on VCAM. So some of these were known, but not the whole group. And that's what omics can give us, the complete picture. So let's take this home. At three months, a decline in that extracellular matrix pathway represented by 
urine protein CD163, CD206 can predict the one-year response, and this outperforms proteinuria. These are going to allow early treatment changes once we get them into routine clinical practice. And can you imagine maybe someday these will be the outcomes in kidney trials, so we don't have to do two-year trials, we'll do three-month trials. Now, of course, we need more longitudinal studies, don't we? Because these are based on a relatively small number of patients that were in the AMP study. I want to thank you for listening at the ACR meeting. Please go to room now. We know where everything is happening. Thank you.